I want to welcome uh, Mayor Lumumba and his wife Ebony and their family. Thank you for being with us. Uh, we're a church that prays for our country and our leaders almost every week. And so uh, we lift all of you all up. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 25. We're going to be uh, beginning a sermon series today on the, uh, on the life of, of Jacob. Um, Jacob uh, is an interesting and important figure. He's probably overshadowed to many of us by the life of Abraham. And yet, uh, when God introduces himself to Moses, he tells him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Uh, once Jacob is introduced on the scene in our passage at the end of this morning in Genesis 25, he never leaves the scene. That in fact, Genesis ends with Genesis 50, with Jacob dying in Egypt, protected from a famine, reunited with all of his family in Egypt, and then Pharaoh actually gives him a royal escort to go be buried by Joseph. And so when Jacob comes on the scene in Genesis 25, he's just kind of there in the front and in the back, even until the book ends. When you get to the New Testament, it's said of Jesus that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will be no end. Or in John chapter four, when Jesus had to go to Samaria, he went to a field that was owned by Jacob and Jesus had to go sit by Jacob's well to meet the woman there. Or in Romans chapter nine, when Paul wants to talk about the doctrine of election, he says, look, look at Jacob and look at Esau. Or in Hebrews chapter 11, Jacob is propped up in the hall of faith. And so the scriptures want us to know this imperfect man. And this morning we get a, a wonderful introduction to Jacob, but we get a better introduction to Jacob's God. And so that's what I want to read, Genesis 25. So bear with me, it's a bunch of names and places. But this is God's word, so we're going to read it. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim and Latushim and Lumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanak, Abida, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. And these are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohor, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth, Nebioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kadar, Adbil, Mipsam, Mishma, Duma, Massah, Hadad, Timah, Jetur, Nafish, and Kadima. 
These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and he died and he was gathered with his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided and the one shall be stronger than the other, but the older will serve the younger. Amen. Let's pray. The Lord, your word is true. Every single name and place mentioned and your word is profitable for your people. And so, Lord, I pray that you will use your servant to build up your people as two reminded us, Lord, uh, we can water and we can plant, but only God gives the growth and the increase. And so, Holy Spirit, use uh, your servant to build up your people. They are yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, if you grew up in the South like I did or we did, it's not uncommon when you go somewhere to have someone upon first meeting you ask you, who are your people? Or who your family? Or where are you from? Where are your people from? And you know that, that that's kind of how the Hebrew worldview works. That when you show up on the scene in the Bible, the Bible is often concerned with who are your people? Who are your mama? Who are your daddy? Where y'all live at? Where are you from? And so it ought to make perfect sense that when this transition is happening and, and Jacob is going to be thrust on the scene in Genesis, that the author of Genesis is going to slow down and say, you can't really understand Jacob until you know his people. Matter of fact, everybody that you heard read this morning, they're relatives of Jacob. You got Jacob's dad is Isaac. Jacob's mom is Rebecca. Jacob's grandmama is Sarah, who's now deceased. Jacob's grandfather is Abraham. Jacob's half uncle is Ishmael. Jacob's half cousins are Ishmael's children. Jacob's other half cousins are the sons of, Ish, I mean, of Abraham and Keturah. That what you're getting here is all of these people and they're all related to this person, Jacob. It's as if the author of Genesis is saying, you can't understand Jacob until you understand his family and what he's gone through and where they live. They're orienting him around a people. And so I got three things I want us to consider in this text this morning. And here's the first thing. God's people will endure death, dysfunction and disappointment. God's people will endure death, dysfunction, and disappointment. That if you look at this text, a lot of people are dying. That we now know that Sarah, Abraham's beloved wife, 
back over in Genesis 23, she died. And then Isaac, her son, in his grief, goes and marries Rebecca. And so Abraham says, look, he's grieving. He's lost his mother. I know what. He needs a wife, right? That, that, that's the way this is kind of set up here. Uh, and then you realize that Abraham, he's the patriarch. He too died. And it, the text says that he died at an old, ripe age, a strong man, full of days, at the age of 175. And then he was buried next to his wife, Sarah, by Isaac and Ishmael. And we're going to get to who they are later. But then look down in verse 17. Ishmael, which is Jacob's half uncle, also died. These are the years of Ishmael. He died at 137 years of age. Now, when you read this text, this does not mean that all of these people died and then Jacob was born. So in other words, this is not a chronology. Now, I, I can kind of prove it to you, right? Remember how old was Abraham when um, Isaac was born? He was 100, right? Remember that? And how many years older than Sarah was Abraham? 10, right? So they had Isaac when Abraham was 100. Well, this text tells us that Isaac married Rebekah when he was 40. So that means Abraham is now 140. And they had to wait 20 years before they had the twins, 160. But what, what age did Abraham die? He died at 175. So that means that, that Abra this is not a chronology, that Abraham lived and knew his two grandkids born of Isaac for 15 years. So the, 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 the author of Genesis is not giving us saying they died, they died, they died, then he was born. You know what he's doing? He's actually telling us a generation is passing away. Abraham is dying. Sarah's dying. Ishmael is dying and a new generation is being born. That this passage wants us all to wrestle with death. And are we ready to die? And do we know the one who is the resurrection and the life? But there's more. You'll notice uh, that, that we're told that Abraham went, died and he went to his people and Ishmael died and was gathered to his people. And some scholars say that this is not just they were buried next in, in a plot of land next to their people. Now, one scholar goes so far as to say that that these words anticipate the resurrection. So who was Abraham gathered to? He was gathered to the ancestors. He was gathered with his spiritual ancestors who died in faith, believing in God and waiting for Jesus to come to raise them from the dead. And so Abraham, a man of faith, dies and is gathered with those people and they're waiting for Jesus to come back. And Ishmael who we have no evidence from the scripture that he believed he dies and is gathered with his people. And we don't think he's a believer. So he too is gathered with the unbelievers and they're waiting for Messiah to come, except their resurrection will not be into eternity with God. It will be eternity apart from God. You see what this passage wants us to do saints is to remember that death is a mighty leveler. You can't build a big enough house to keep it from coming. You can't make enough money to secure yourself. It's been appointed for every one of us to die. And that's what you see happening in this passage. But we also see dysfunction in this passage. Now, remember Jacob's family of origin. 
You might remember that Jacob's story begins with Abraham in Genesis 12, where God tells Abraham, leave your father and follow me to a land that I'm going to give you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a bunch of descendants. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. I will be with you forever. Right. And remember that 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 Sarah and Abraham, they just got tired of waiting. God, you say we're going to have some kids. It's taking you too long. Sarah says, go sleep with Hagar, my Egyptian servant. And Abraham does. And they birthed Ishmael. Now, we tend to think that Abraham only had one concubine. But look at the text, what it says in verse six to the sons of his concubines, plural. Now, who could this be? It's more than likely they're talking about Keturah. Right. This other woman that Abraham seems to marry after Sarah dies, that he ends up having six more kids with. And so scholars are confused, like what's going on here? Because Abraham is 10 years older than Sarah. She dies at 127. He's 137. He lives and he's 175. But you mean to tell me you had six more kids when you were 137? We don't know. It looks like he had some kids with this woman. He eventually married her when his wife died. Right? And you're going to see more dysfunction in Jacob's life. Isaac is going to prefer Esau over Jacob. Rebecca, the mom, is going to prefer Jacob over Esau. When Jacob flees because his own brother wants to kill him, he goes to his uncle's house, Laban, he is so in love with one daughter, but his own uncle deceives him to make him marry the older daughter that he really didn't want to marry so that he could then get the younger daughter that he really married. So he walks out of Laban's house married to two women. And then when he raises his kids, he's going to have a, a favorite. He's going to prefer Joseph in his, his beautiful coat. And then his own brothers are going to hate, hate Joseph because Joseph is daddy's favorite. And his own brothers are going to sell him into slavery into Egypt. And then they're going to lie to the daddy and say, no, no, we don't know what happened to him. Some animal might have got him. Right. And then he's going to, at the end of his life, realize y'all lied to me. My son's been alive all these years. He got family drama, y'all. If Jacob and his family were alive today, they would be on Maury Povich. It is so dysfunctional. And see, some of y'all think a dysfunctional family bars you from the kingdom. God works in tore up families. He works in our brokenness. He shows up and does his greatest works when things are chaotic and awful. And there's also disappointment in the passage. You might be saying, where? Well, look, guys, if you lay verses 12 and 18 next to verses 19 and 21, you'll see it. In verses 12 through 18 of our text, these are the generations of Ishmael. Remember, Ishmael is the son born of the concubine because they got tired of waiting. He's not the son of promise. And look at what's happening in Ishmael's home. This dude got 12 kids. I'm not going to read the names. Look at what it says in verse 15. They have villages and encampments. They're princes. 
And then look at where they live in verse 18. They settled from Havilah or Havilah to Shur. Now, we don't know a whole lot about where this is, but we know from Genesis chapter 2, verse 11, we're told that a river flowed from Eden around the whole land of Havilah, and there is gold there. <laughs> Y'all catch that? So Ishmael, his, I mean, he, he got a lot of kids, and they have land and they've settled in the land where there's gold and they're princes. Meanwhile, what's happening to Isaac? They're barren. They can't have kids for 20 years. Can you imagine what that feels like? Lord, I thought you said we were going to be blessed. Why do they have the gold and why do they have the children? I thought you said that you were with us. Why does it feel like you're against us? I thought that you said that you're going to bless us. Why does it feel like you're blessing everybody but us? And you know what, saints? This is us. We will die. And we will endure death and sorrow. And we come from broken families where people are just struggling and limping alone and doing shady stuff. And we might even be the ones that did the shady stuff. And we deal with disappointment. We watch people who hate God appear to be blessed and highly favored. And we're struggling. I'm just here to tell you, you're not crazy. This is the way of God's people. And you see it in the passage. But there's something beautiful that happens. The second thing you see is that God's people can respond in faith and obedience during these seasons. Even amidst the dysfunction and death and disappointment that we can, by the Holy Spirit who dwells God's people, behave in a manner to set the table for God to do a mighty work of healing and mending and repair. And that's what we see happening in the passage. You see it in two people. You first see it in Abraham and then you see it in Isaac and Rebekah. Now, at first glance, you're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. You just told me that Abraham is a cause of the dysfunction. Yep. He slept with Hagar. He should not have done that, right? But now you're telling me that he got right? He got it together? I'm saying, yep. And you know why we can say he is both? Because if you're honest, you know you're both. You sometimes blow it just like I do. And we don't believe. And we take matters into our own hands. And we don't want to wait. And then we got this faith. And this conviction and this trust, you're God and I'll, I'll, I'll wait on you. And that's what you see Abraham doing in the text. You might remember in Genesis when Isaac was being thrown a party and he was weaned and Sarah saw Ishmael, who I think is about 16 years older than Isaac. She sees him taunting Isaac and she says, send that woman and that kid away. And Abraham is like, what? And God says, yes, listen to him. Send them, listen to her, send her away and I will take care of them. 
And you'll notice right in this text that what did Abraham do? It says, the text says, while he was still alive. While he was still alive, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines, but he sent them to the east, east of the east country. Now, why in the world would he do that? Because he's believing, Lord, you said that through the world, you'll bless Isaac. You said through Isaac, the Messiah is coming. And I may have blew it back then, but right now I see clearly and I trust you. And so I will respond in faith. Abraham sees, despite his weakness, that the promise of God is still standing. It's rock solid despite his own shiftiness. And what does Isaac do? If you continue reading Genesis, here's what you're going to notice. That, that, that Abraham and Isaac seem to be living parallel lives. Here's what I mean. Abraham endures a famine. And we're going to read that Isaac endured a famine. Abraham gets into it with Abimelech over wells and water. And guess what? Isaac gets into it with Abimelech over wells and water. And so if you're reading Genesis, you're reading this thinking that whatever Abraham did, that's what Isaac's going to do. That's the way it's set up. And then you read that Abraham and Sarah was barren, right? And what did they do? They went and got a concubine and said, sleep with her to have a kid. And if you're reading Genesis, you're expecting that when you see barrenness in the text, that Isaac and Rebekah are going to do the same thing that Abraham did. And then you get this swerve. Skirt. That ain't what they did. Instead of taking matters into their own hands like Abraham and Sarah did. Isaac clasped his hands and fell on his face and prayed for his wife. John Currit says that there's more there, that it reads as if Isaac didn't just pray for her, he prayed over her Amen. and next to her. You catch that? Now, where, why would he respond this way? It reads as if he's been discipled. It reads as if he's learned from his parents' mistake. It reads as if he probably saw Abraham looking at the sunset, wondering about that son that he had to send away and said, Daddy, what's wrong? Son, I miss him. I wonder how they're doing. And if you ever face barrenness, don't do what we did. We got it wrong. God is good. God gave us you. We tried to rush him and we invited harm into our marriage. But you're the miracle. You're the kid conceived supernaturally by the hand of God. And don't you ever forget that. Nothing is impossible with God. I imagine Isaac hearing this and responding in faith. And this is good news for us today, isn't it? Some of us have caused pain like Abraham with our sin and the shame eats us up. 
And this passage reminds us that we can carry regret, but we can in Jesus forget what is behind, have it covered in Christ, press forward for the upward calling of Christ, and live faithfully. I'm here to tell you, you are not what you've done in the past. I'm here to tell you that it's like Abraham. You can get right. You can respond in faith. You can believe your God again. And you can seek to mend what was broken. When you read the Bible, we're going to discover that Abraham sinned. Isaac is going to sin. Jacob is going to sin. And when you get to Hebrews 11, none of their sins are even mentioned. It's as if God is saying, what sins? I blotted them out on Calvary. You can't even bring them up no more. I remember them no more. They're in the hall of the faithful. And do you believe that, saints, that when we repent and believe the gospel, that we can endeavor a new obedience? And we can also learn from the mistakes of others. And I think this pushes against a posture it's easy to have in the church. It's easy, it's easy to not let people know that we struggle. It's easy in our parenting to never be wrong. It's easy in our friendships to never ever admit that, man, there was a time in my life when I didn't live right and I didn't do right and, and I didn't wait on God. And you see, I think if we do that, we're robbing younger Christians of what it means to persevere and to wait. And, and this is an invitation. I think when Paul says older women disciple younger women, I don't think he means you older women take this posture and download all of your knowledge onto them. I think what Paul is saying, invite them into your life, invite them into your failures, invite them into your victories, invite them to your God. Let them know that you have not always been what you are and encourage them, young woman or young man. I know what it's like to fall. I know what it's like to lose my way. I know what it's like to struggle. And I've been there and I've done that. And I admonish you in Jesus out of love. God is rock steady. He's solid. He is truthful. You can trust him. Don't go the way that we went. Amen. Go the way of your God. Amen. Which moves us to our last point. What is it about God that moves us to trust him in the midst of death, dysfunction, and disappointment? You got to have the Holy Spirit to do this, y'all. You see, I think the Holy Spirit does two things. First, the Holy Spirit, when we believe in Jesus, he testifies into our heart of hearts after remaking our hearts that we're children of God. Over and over again, I'm a child. I'm your daughter. I'm your son. But I think he testifies the other way. And this is what your God is like. This is what he's like. And what the Holy Spirit does to us to enable us to live faithfully in the disappointment and sorrow and sadness is remind us that your God is faithful and trustworthy. He's available and powerful. 
and will break the script to lavishly bless you. That's the third point. God is trustworthy, faithful, available, and powerful, and will break the script to lavishly bless you. Why can Abraham make these provisions for Isaac at the end of his life? It's because he believes that though he dies, his God is very much alive. That God will keep God's promises. Lying is not in the nature of God. If God says it, he will do it. While we may not see it, others after us may. Is this not the essence of faith? It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. It's the spiritual imagination rooted in the word of God that can see what's not yet there. But by faith, we know it's coming because it rests on the unchangeable nature of God. And so when Abraham looks back on his life, he sees instance after instance of God's faithfulness and truthfulness. God, you told me to leave my father's house for land. And when Abraham dies, he dies in the land. You told me that you're going to bless those who bless me and persecute those who persecute me. And when my nephew Lot was taken, you let me leave victorious. And when I lied about my wife twice, you fixed what I messed up. And when I acted in haste and went out of my marriage to conceive a child, you kept the child because this child came to me and buried me. And you gave me the son of promise. You gave me Isaac when I was 100 years old. That what God, Abraham sees is God is relentlessly committed to blessing him. What about Isaac and Rebekah? How can they pray and wait? It's because God is a God who hears and acts. They sought the Lord in their infertility. And guess what? God heard and acted. He enabled them to conceive. But then he did far more than they could even think. I'm guessing they're praying for a child. And, and Rebecca's like, what in the world is going on? And God says, yeah, it ain't just one inside of you. It's two. Can you imagine like that feeling? And God does more. It's not just two kids inside of you. It's two sons and they're going to be two nations. And this is before sonograms. This is before electricity. God is telling her who is inside of you and who they will become and what you will endure in their lives. He's exceeding their expectations. And he tells them about these two sons in her womb. They will be divided. And notice what it says. One shall be stronger than the other. And we don't have to guess. We know who the stronger one is. It's Esau. He's the hunter. He's the one that killed wild game. That his daddy loved to eat the game that my masculine machismo son Esau goes and gets me. I want some of his food, right? And we know the one that's weak. The one who has to run from his brother who is strong. That's Jacob. But then notice the divine reversal in the text. One's going to be stronger than the other. The older one, the stronger one, he's going to serve the younger. That's upside down. That doesn't happen. The older child normally got the birthright. The older child normally got the lion's share of the father's estate. The older child was the child of promise. And God says, no, nah, I'm going off script. 
I'm turning things upside down. I'm going to bless the younger one. And Paul tells us what's happening in Romans 9. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of the one who calls, Rebekah was told the older child Esau, the stronger child Esau, must serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Is there injustice on God's part? Certainly not. God will have mercy on who God has mercy and who will have compassion on whom he chooses to have compassion. This isn't just here for Rebecca, it's here for us. God's kingdom is upside down, saints. God will go off script. He will choose what is weak, what is insignificant, to shame the strong, Jesus is building a kingdom, not with the starters, but with the bench warmers. Jesus calls and saves sinners, not those who think they're righteous and need no forgiveness. But there's more. Sinclair Ferguson calls Jacob the twisted man or the twister. And the story of Jacob is the story of God untwisting what is twisted. And this passage reminds us that not only is Jacob twisted, but the world that we live in is twisted. In this world, death is a twisting. In this world, dysfunction in families is a twisting. In this world, disappointment is a twisting. And the good news of the gospel is that God begins by untwisting his people, by pardoning their sins, but he doesn't stop there. He begins to untwist your families and straighten them back up. He begins to untwist death so that we live forever. He begins to untwist disappointment so that our hope is set on Jesus. What's the guarantee that God is untwisting everything that's twisted? It's not in Jacob. It's in Jacob's later son, Who's going to be born of a woman, a virgin, who's going to come and usher in a new kingdom. In Luke 1.33, the angel comes to Mary and tells her, do not be afraid. The child that you carry will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will know no end. You see, Jacob is a scoundrel. He's going to fight and claw to get the birthright. And Jesus is Messiah. He has the birthright and he gives it to you. Jacob is going to run for his life to protect himself. And Jacob's greater son is going to run to the cross to protect you. You see, this really is not about Jacob. It's about the better Jacob. Rest in Jesus today, saints. Trust in Jesus today, saints. He is untwisting all that is twisted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for your people. As I take my seat, may your spirit be very much alive and active, reminding us of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. Pray this in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, saints.